Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. On October 5th, 2011, Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple who revolutionized personal computing, and later forever transformed the way we listen to music, watch movies, and communicate over the phone, died of pancreatic cancer at his home in Palo Alto. From the moment of his first diagnosis in the fall of 2003, Jobs battled the disease in the public eye, while continuing to work and innovate at a torrid pace, even as his once fleshy face grew visibly gaunt. He would stand on the Apple stage in Cupertino, California, delivering new product announcements to global audiences of hundreds of millions of people, often while tormented by pain, his frail frame concealed behind his signature black turtlenecks and blue jeans. During his 10 years Apple's chief executive, he took a number of medical leaves of absence, first for surgery in 2004 after his initial diagnosis, and later when he received a life-saving liver transplant in 2009. And yet, through it all, both during the times when he was riddled with illness and at other moments when he was feeling better, he worked, with a relentlessness that baffled his employees and his critics, and worried his doctors and his family. Even after he knew death was imminent and he turned over Apple's reins to Tim Cook in 2011, he remained deeply engaged in the company's affairs. By the time he died, Jobs had become a man singularly associated with technology in the modern age, a pioneer and a disruptor, an absurdly wealthy businessman who openly focused on maximizing profits, but who was nevertheless beloved by everyday consumers for creating the gadgetry that democratized information and delivered untold conveniences to the common man. His former rival turned partner, Bill Gates, said after Jobs died that knowing Steve was, quote, an insanely great honor. But it would be a mistake to marvel at Jobs' business successes and at the post-mortem accolades given to him by presidents and industrialists and describe his life as one of unbroken triumphs. For the public, it certainly was. Many of Jobs' innovations were decades before their time, his single-minded focus allowed him to expedite our movement into the modern world more hastily than perhaps any person in the last century. But to his daughter who he abandoned, the business associates whose ideas and innovations he claimed as his own, his employees who he would often dehumanize, or even the waitstaff at his local restaurant who he would tear to shreds over tiny mishaps, he was unforgivable. But perhaps with Steve Jobs, you could not have it any other way. Perhaps his relentless nature left no time for family, and his ruthlessness was essential for the innovation. Maybe the demand for perfection from all those who crossed his path was necessary to the progress from which we have all benefited. And perhaps, even his death was essential for us to fully appreciate what he brought to us all. Steve Jobs was 56 years old. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. This is Last Days, Steve Jobs.
The immediate cause of Steve Jobs' death was an islet cell pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor leading to respiratory arrest. These tumors are relatively rare and arise from cells of the endocrine and nervous systems within the pancreas. Interesting, although pancreatic cancer is one of the deadliest forms of the disease with only an 11% survival rate after five years, the islet cell variety Jobs had is one of the least deadly, with a recovery rate of up to 90% with early detection and treatment. And so, when Steve Jobs was first diagnosed in 2003, his doctors said that with aggressive action, he should be able to beat the disease, and they advised him to undergo surgery immediately. But Jobs refused. He abhorred the idea of surgery, commenting that he did not want to be, quote, cut open, and instead convinced himself that he could combat the cancer just as he had business setbacks throughout his career, with positive thinking and relentless hard work. So according to Jobs' biographer, Walter Isaacson, for nine months, Jobs tried to cure his disease with a vegan diet, macrobiotics, acupuncture, herbs, bowel cleansings, and other remedies he found online. At one point, he even consulted a spiritualist. But of course, without medical treatment, the cancer persisted and spread, and Jobs was eventually forced to relent to surgery in July 2004. When Jobs died seven years later, a number of oncologists publicly criticized his decision to opt for alternative treatments for nine months before finally getting the surgery, one even saying Jobs, quote, essentially committed suicide through his misguided faith in alternative medicines. Two years after the first surgery, Jobs' cancer returned in full, and this time he was given little hope of remission. But while his body was betraying him, his brain and his work ethic never did. Between surgeries, transplants, and other crippling medical treatments, Jobs worked around the clock on developing what would become his legacy. The idea of an Apple phone initially came from a man named Jean-Marie Hulot, a high-ranking software engineer for Apple France. Hulot brought the idea to Jobs before he got sick in the early 2000s, but Jobs rejected it. Hulot and his team of engineers continued to work for years to develop a good enough prototype to convince Jobs to back the project until finally, in 2004, just a month before Jobs would have his first cancer surgery, he greenlit the project. Jobs would later say he looked around at people carrying separate devices for emails, phones, and MP3 music players, and knew that a product that could combine all three would revolutionize the digital world. Over the next two and a half years, Jobs wore his faltering body down even further by demanding a superhuman effort of himself and his employees. Stories emerged about how, in the midst of 20-hour days, he would berate his engineering team over perceived slip-ups, accuse them of threatening Apple's reputation, and say they should, quote, all hate each other for having let each other down. He routinely fired department heads or entire teams of developers and replaced them on the spot. Jobs' Apple co-founder, Steve Wozniak, who would feud with Jobs throughout their working relationship, said Jobs would push employees to pitch ideas before they were ready and then blast them as idiots in front of their peers when the ideas didn't stack up. And yet, on January 7th, 2007, with the cancer inside him winning in the war against his treatments, Jobs stood before an auditorium of excited Apple employees to announce perhaps the most revolutionary consumer technology advancement in human history. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. These are not three separate devices. This is one device. 
we are calling it iPhone. You know, Jason, I watched that event and it still gives me chills because this instrument we still all hold in our pocket, that is the genesis of it. And when you talked about some of his monstrous behavior and the, the stories are legion, if you read any biographies of him berating employees, you know, you know, humiliating them publicly. Yeah. I mean, this was the CEO of a hugely important company bringing in underlings and just absolutely eviscerating Bring, them in front of their colleagues. Bringing in his chief engineer in front of all the hundreds of people who work for his chief engineer and calling his chief engineer an idiot and a stupid person who couldn't possibly design something in front of all his underlings, just undermining their authority. It, it, it's unbelievable, but I can't help but look at that presentation and think this was a man who knew he was in a race against time. Yeah. I mean, the cancer was ravaging his body and the way he treated people is, is absolutely inexcusable, but he must have known on some level that there was an urgency. He needed to push this project forward. He had this vision of this iPhone that combined the three things you want in life all in the palm of your hand and he couldn't suffer fools. He didn't have time for it. Yeah. And I'm not trying to sort of say that that behavior was ever allowable in any sense of the word, but I do sort of understand it a little bit differently now when I when I watch it. We'll go ahead and take a quick ad break. We'll be back after this. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And look, not everyone believed in the concept of the iPhone. Microsoft co-founder Steve Ballmer famously said, quote, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share no chance. He grossly underestimated what has become the most important gadget in technology history, but Steve Jobs believed in it. And in the first full year of iPhone production, Apple sold 13.1 million units. Five years later, they sold 125 million units, which generated 78.6 billion in revenue. And in 2022, Apple sold over 200 million iPhones for over $220 billion in revenue. The iPhone is by far the most successful consumer electronic device in history, and there isn't even a close second. I was, I was reading that after the mobile phone, and other people make mobile mobile phones too, not nearly sure, as Sure, Nokia was big. There's yeah, a whole yeah, legion Samsung's huge, obviously. After the mobile phone, the transistor radio is likely number two. It, it, it's bigger it, than television. Transistor radios are. But the, the, uh, the, uh, the mobile phone blows away televisions. Nothing comes close to the mobile phone, and nothing in the mobile phone market compares to Apple. It, there's just nothing like it. But as Jobs was becoming insanely wealthy and famous, his detractors began to go public with long-whispered stories about the dark side of Steve Jobs. There were the anecdotes about his dehumanizing treatment of employees we touched on earlier, and the story about how he refused to grant stock options to many of the people who worked alongside Jobs and Wozniak to create the company in the first place. As Wozniak and Jobs were amassing massive personal fortunes, Woz proposed that they jointly give a small fraction of their shares to this group of people. Jobs refused, saying he wouldn't give them a penny. Wozniak instead compensated them all out of his own personal fortune, 
But it wasn't just employees. Silicon Valley vendors, store owners, and other everyday citizens told stories about being berated by Jobs on the slightest provocation. Jobs' quest for success also caused him to take advantage of the inventions and ideas of others. Shortly after Apple took off, Xerox accused Jobs of building his early personal computers on the back of technology which Xerox built but Jobs stole, including the graphical user interface, the mouse, and document-centric computing all of which previously existed on Xerox's Alto computer. Jobs biographer Walter Isaacson called what Jobs did, quote, one of the biggest heists in the chronicles of industry, and even quoted Jobs as saying he was, quote, always shameless about stealing great ideas. Later, Apple's chief designer, Johnny Ive, a man who Jobs once said, understands the core of what we do better than anyone, buttressed this point, saying that Jobs had a nasty habit of taking full credit for others' ideas after those ideas panned out. I've said, quote, he will go through a process of looking at my ideas and say, that's no good. That's not very good. I like that one. And later I'll be sitting in the audience and he'll be talking about it as if it was his idea. Steve Wozniak, for his part, bristled at the public's belief perpetuated by Jobs himself that every great idea was Jobs and every bad idea was someone else's. So this was, these kind of things are all phony, like he's the one directing all of the wisdom and intelligence, and it was really coming from other people. He was a good filter for it, is better. In these time frames, he, he failed with the Apple III, he failed with the Lisa, he failed with the Macintosh. People don't know how deeply the Macintosh failed, how deeply our stock slid down, how we had to regroup quickly and, re, and build a Macintosh market over three years while we had huge revenues from the Apple II, and how Steve was trying to kill the Apple II in a lot of ways and do very unfair, unrealistic things to it. That's not enough. Jason, this is a guy who worked so closely with Steve Jobs. And whenever you see Steve Wozniak talk about him, it always comes across this way. There was a, a sort of resentment at the core of their relationship because Steve Wozniak was the technical wizard who actually put together the computers. But I don't want to minimize Jobs' importance, no, even so, though he built his own sort of legacy. Yeah, it, look, look, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are very different people. Woz was the computer nerd who developed the background. Jobs gave him all the credit in the world for doing that. But he also, he said many times, I don't care about making money. I want to give my computers away for free. And he meets Jobs, and Jobs is like, well, that doesn't work. So yeah, let's, I'm let's, the consummate capitalist. I'm the Let me help you here. So Jobs is the one that takes this product. And the truth is that but for Jobs, Woz would be a poor man. Yeah. And maybe Woz is happy with that. Maybe he doesn't care. And that may very well be to, to take him at his word. He wouldn't care. But it's true. But but for Waz, Jobs would have found a way to meet great wealth and success. I think that's right. And so and so when you're Waz and you're like, this guy worked too hard. He was he, and he criticized Jobs for being really difficult on people. It's because Waz didn't care about stuff like that. It, to his credit, he just money wasn't a big thing for him. He still he gave away most of his fortune. Waz is only worth like 110 million dollars, whereas the Jobs when he died was worth 10 billion. It's just like Waz just like gave it all away. He yeah. didn't care. He and Jobs like, I'm not game. giving money, stock options to people who didn't buy into the, the time. They had the right to. They didn't do it. I'm not going to give it away to them. Too bad. Yeah. But no criticism tossed at Jobs, cut as deep, or demonstrated his immorality so clearly as his treatment of his first daughter, Lisa. Lisa was born in 1978 to Jobs' longtime girlfriend, Chrisanne Brennan. Jobs was at the hospital the morning Lisa was born, and when she was brought to him, he refused to hold her, instead proclaiming for everyone to hear that she was not his child, and he left the room. Even after a DNA test proved Jobs' paternity, for two years, Jobs, who was at the time building Apple and living large off investor money, ignored Brennan's repeated pleas for financial support or for him to at least visit his daughter. He never sent a penny or ever saw Lisa. Brennan, meanwhile, accepted welfare to feed their daughter. In 1980, Brennan filed a suit for back child support. 
After initially claiming poverty, on December 10th, Dobbs quickly relented and insisted on an immediate resolution of the dispute, ultimately agreeing to pay $500 per month. Two days later, Apple went public and Jobs was suddenly worth a cool $200 million. He never paid Chrisanne a penny more than he had to. For the next three decades, even as he developed a part-time relationship with Lisa, Jobs excluded her from extravagant trips with his new wife and kids, denied her luxuries he provided to his other children, and most bizarrely, totally refused to even admit he had named one of Apple's early computer models, called the Lisa, after his daughter. She was a blemish on his skyrocket to superstardom he did not want to acknowledge. The Lisa story, Derek, is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. I can't understand it. There's, there's a story that she tells. She wrote an article in 2018 about her relationship with her father. It's not all bad. She's had some nice things to say about him. But she said that on the one luxury trip the family took her on, they went, I think it was to southern France or somewhere, and they pull over on some beautiful dock and Bono walks towards them. Steve had set it up so the kids can meet Bono, whatever. So Bono walks towards them. And at lunch, Bono says, oh, your name's Lisa. Is that named? So Steve, you named your first computer after your daughter. And for the first time, he looks at Bono and he looks at Lisa and he looks back at Bono and he kind of shrugs his head and he goes, yeah, I did. And it was the first time he'd ever admitted that. The he, first acknowledgement that his own daughter heard that he named a product after her was when he said it to Bono begrudgingly. shamed into saying it to Bono because he didn't have another excuse ready-made. He had just told Lisa, but she had asked him in the past. He said, no, I didn't name it after you. And the other story you mentioned is, yeah. is staggering. Look, it, it it is understandable in some sense to be upset that you impregnated a woman who you didn't end up liking and feel like she's making a money grab. But once he had been proven to be the yeah. father of Lisa, the way he behaved is... Beyond inexcusable, on the eve of going public, which, by the way, Jason mentioned, this is something that Steve Jobs knew, that overnight he was going to become worth nine figures. That was going to happen. He knew that the company was going to be very successful. Uh, On paper, at least, he would be hugely wealthy. And he settles for five hundred dollars. He expedites a, month. a settlement. He expedites a settlement so that he can protect that money and only be obligated to pay five hundred dollars a month to Lisa. It boggles the mind. You know that I'm pretty tight with money. <laughs> I have a very sensitive relationship with it, but not with my kids. We always talk about right. this. And and this was his, you know, this was his daughter. Uh, for him to behave this way, it's it's just hard to understand. I want to get back into Jobs' health for a second here, but it, there is a happy ending to the Lisa story, or a somewhat happy ending. So we're gonna we're gonna save that for the end. But, but talk about his health a little bit, picking up again, uh, late 2007. Yeah, absolutely. By late 2007, doctors confirmed to him that the cancer had spread and the prognosis was grim. Despite this, Jobs continued to maintain to all but a very close circle of friends, doctors, and family that his cancer had not returned. And when people commented on his gaunt frame, he cited one less serious health issue after another. And that is what people believed until January 2008, when he walked onto the Apple stage to announce the iPhone 3. Here's Jobs' biographer, Walter Isaacson, talking to Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. In 2008... He unveiled the iPhone 3, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't the main story. All of a sudden, people are gasping because he's lost so much weight, he looks so frail. And suddenly, people are realizing that he's very sick again. He denies it publicly. He puts out things that there's a hormone imbalance, which has a tiny kernel of truth to it because his liver was secreting the wrong hormones. But it wasn't just a hormonal imbalance. It's because the cancer had gone to his liver. So this is a big problem, right? This is a huge problem. He is the CEO now of a publicly traded company, and he is not disclosing the serious nature of it, of his health. And issues. he's not just any CEO. He's the most famous CEO in the world. And a lot of Apple's value is wrapped up in the belief that Steve Jobs is healthy and is the figurehead over this company. And he is 
outwardly lying to the press. He's he's basically manipulating the stock price by continuing to insist that he is healthy because he knows that if he says he's not healthy, then that stock price is going to come down. Yeah, look, uh, you, not to get into too bogged down into the details, there's something called key man provisions yeah. in a lot of corporate documents. There's no more key man than than Steve Jobs. What he meant to the company's share price, what he meant to the company's future was huge, bigger than other CEOs at the time. And by withholding information that could impact the share price could have been a big, big problem as a securities issue. Yeah. But by January 2009, Jobs wrote in an internal Apple memo that in the previous week he had, quote, learned that my health-related issues are more complex than I originally thought and announced a six-month leave of absence until the end of June 2009. In April 2009, Jobs underwent a liver transplant and there was some hope that it would buy him time. He returned to work two months later and resumed all of his previous responsibilities. But just a year and a half later, on January 17th, 2011, Apple announced that Jobs had once again been granted a medical leave of absence. And yet, while on leave, Jobs appeared at an iPad 2 launch event, the Worldwide Developers Conference to introduce iCloud, and before the Cupertino City Council, each time sounding robust, but looking more challenged. Finally, on August 24, 2011, Jobs announced his resignation as Apple's CEO, writing to the board of directors, quote, I have always said that if there ever came a day when I could no longer meet my duties and expectations as Apple CEO, I would be the first to let you know. Unfortunately, that day has come. The next day, a photo emerged of a truly skeletal Jobs walking onto the Apple campus, and it was clear to all that the end was very near. Just six weeks later, he died. Toward the end of his life, Jobs acknowledged some of his mistakes. He said he regretted not having surgery when he was first diagnosed and of not being a better father, both to Lisa and to the three kids he had later with his wife, Christine Powell. In his will, Jobs left the bulk of his wealth to Christine for the benefit of their children and to a number of charities, and, thankfully, many, many millions of dollars to Lisa, who he had mistreated for so long. But when it came to business, Jobs had no misgivings. In all the interviews Jobs did with Walter Isaacson that became the source for much of his biography, there were no apologies the employees who worked so hard, or to the people whose ideas he claimed for his own. To Jobs, that's just what you did to achieve greatness. And with that, we'll give Steve Jobs the last word, talking on what he believes was the path to success. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can, you can change it, you can mold it, um, that's maybe the most important thing, is to shake off this... Uh, this uh, erroneous notion that life is is there and you're just going to live in it versus embrace it, change it, improve it, make your mark upon it. Um, I, I think that's very important. And however you learn that, once you learn it, uh, you'll want to change life and make it better because it's kind of messed up in a lot of ways. 